Chapter 1, Part 1 of Apologia Pro Vita Sua by John Henry Cardinal Newman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bill McGillivray. History of my religious opinions to the year 1833. It may easily be conceived how great a trial it is for me to write the following history of myself but I must not shrink from the task. The words, Secretum meum mihi, keep ringing in my ears, but as men draw towards their end, they care less for disclosures. Nor is it the least part of my trial to anticipate that, upon first reading what I have written, my friends may consider much in it irrelevant to my purpose. Yet I cannot help thinking that, viewed as a whole, it will affect what I propose to myself in giving it to the public. I was brought up from a child to take great delight in reading the Bible, but I had no formed religious conviction till I was fifteen. Of course I had perfect knowledge of my catechism. After I was grown up, I put on paper my recollections of the thoughts and feelings on religious subjects, which I had at the time that I was a child and a boy such as has remained on my mind with sufficient prominence to make me then consider them worth recording. Out of these, written in the long vacation of 1820, and transcribed with additions in 1823, I select two which are at once the most definite among them, and also have a bearing on my later convictions. 1. I used to wish the Arabian tales were true. My imagination ran on unknown influences on magical powers and talismans i thought life might be a dream or i an angel and all this world of deception my fellow angels by a playful device concealing themselves from me and deceiving me with the semblance of a material world again reading in the spring of eighteen sixteen a sentence from dr watts remnants of time entitled the saints unknown to the world to the effect that there is nothing in their figure or countenance to distinguish them, etc., etc. I suppose he spoke of angels who lived in the world, as it were, disguised. 2. The other remark is this. I was very superstitious, and for some time previous to my conversion, when I was fifteen, used constantly to cross myself on going into the dark. Of course, I must have got this practice from some external source or other, but I can make no sort of conjecture whence, and certainly no one had ever spoken to me on the subject of the Catholic religion, which I only knew by name. The French master was an emigre priest, but he was simply made a butt, as French masters too commonly were in that day, and spoke English very imperfectly. There was a Catholic family in the village, old maiden ladies, we used to think, but I knew nothing about them. I have of late years heard that there were one or two Catholic boys in the school, but either we were carefully kept from knowing this, or the knowledge of it made simply no impression on our minds. My brother will bear witness how free the school was from Catholic ideas. I had once been into Warwick Street Chapel with my father, who, I believe, wanted to hear some pieces of music, all that I bore away from it was the recollection of a pulpit and a preacher and a boy swinging a censer. 
when i was at littlemore i was looking over old copy-books of my school days and i found among them my first latin verse-book and in the first page of it there was a device which almost took my breath away with surprise i have the book before me now and have just been showing it to others i have written in the first page in my schoolboy hand john h newman february eleventh eighteen eleven verse book then follow my first verses between verse and book i have drawn the figure of a solid cross upright and next to it is what may indeed be meant for a necklace but what i cannot make out to be anything else than a set of beads suspended with a little cross attached at this time i was not quite ten years old i supposed i got these ideas from some romance mrs radcliffe's or miss porter's or from some religious picture but the strange thing is how among the thousand objects which meet a boy's eyes these in particular should so have fixed themselves in my mind that i made them thus practically my own i am certain there was nothing in the churches i attended or the prayer books i read to suggest them it must be recollected that anglican churches and prayer books were not decorated in those days as i believe they are now when i was fourteen i read Paine's tracts against the old testament and found pleasure in thinking of the objections which were contained in them also i read some of hume's essays and perhaps that on miracles so at least i gave my father to understand but perhaps it was a brag also i recollect copying out some french verses perhaps voltaire's in denial of the immortality of the soul and saying to myself something like how dreadful but how plausible when i was fifteen in the autumn of eighteen sixteen a great change of thought took place in me i fell under the influence of a definite creed and received into my intellect impressions of dogma which through god's mercy have never been effaced or obscured above and beyond the conversions and sermons of the excellent man long dead the rev walter mayers of pembroke college oxford who was the human means of this beginning of divine faith in me was the effect of the books which he put into my hands all the school of calvin one of the first books i read was a work of romaine's i neither recollect the title nor the contents except one doctrine which of course i do not include among these which i believe to have come from a divine source namely the doctrine of final perseverance i received it at once and believed that the inward conversion of which i was conscious and of which i still am more certain than that i have hands and feet would last into the next life and that i was elected to eternal glory i have no conscience that this belief had any tendency whatever to lead me to be careless about pleasing god i retained it till the age of twenty-one when it gradually faded away but i believe that it had some influence on my opinions in the direction of those childish imaginations which i have already mentioned namely in isolating me from the objects which surrounded me in confirming me in my mistrust of the reality of material phenomena and making me rest in the thought of two 
and two only absolute and luminous self-evident beings, myself and my Creator. For while I considered myself predestined to salvation, my mind did not dwell upon others, as fancying them simply passed over, not predestined to eternal death. I only thought of the mercy to myself. The detestable doctrine last mentioned is simply denied and abjured, unless my memory strangely deceives me by the writer who made a deeper impression on my mind than any other, and to whom, humanly speaking, I almost owe my soul, Thomas Scott of Aston Sanford. I so admired and delighted in his writings that, when I was an undergraduate, I thought of making a visit to his parsonage in order to see a man whom I so deeply revered. I hardly think I could have given up the idea of this expedition even after I had taken my degree, for the news of his death in 1821 came upon me as a disappointment as well as a sorrow. I hung upon the lips of Daniel Wilson, afterwards Bishop of Calcutta, as in two sermons at St. John's Chapel he gave the history of Scott's life and death. I had been possessed of his force of truth in essays from a boy, his commentary I bought when I was an undergraduate. What, I suppose, will strike any reader of Scott's history and writings is his bold unworldliness and vigorous independence of mind. He followed truth wherever it led him, beginning with Unitarianism and ending in a zealous faith in the Holy Trinity. It was he who first planted deep in my mind that fundamental truth of religion with the assistance of Scott's essays in the admirable work of Jones of Nayland. I made a collection of scripture text in proof of the doctrine with remarks, I think, of my own upon them before I was sixteen, and a few months later I drew up a series of texts in support of each verse of the Athanasian Creed. These papers I have still. Besides his unworldliness, what I also admired in Scott was his resolute opposition to antinomianism in the minutely practical character of his writings. They show him to be a true Englishman, and I deeply felt his influence, and for years I used almost as proverbs what I considered to be the scope and issue of his doctrine, holiness rather than peace, and growth the only evidence of life. Calvinists make a sharp separation between the elect and the world. There is much in this that is cognate, or parallel to the Catholic doctrine. But they go on to say, as I understand them, very differently from Catholicism, that the converted and the unconverted can be discriminated by man, that they justified our conscience of their state of justification, and that the regenerate cannot fall away. Catholics, on the other hand, shade and soften the awful antagonism between good and evil, which is one of their dogmas, by holding that there are different degrees of justification, that there is a great difference in point of gravity between sin and sin, that there is the possibility and the danger of falling away, and that there is no certain knowledge given to anyone that he is simply in the state of grace, and much less that he is to persevere to the end. Of the Calvinistic tenets, the only one which took root in my mind was the fact of heaven and hell, 
divine favor and divine wrath of the justified and of the unjustified. The notion that the regenerate and the justified were one and the same, and that the regenerate, as such, had the gift of perseverance, remained with me not many years, as I have said already. This main Catholic doctrine of the warfare between the city of God and the powers of darkness was also deeply impressed upon my mind by the work of a character very opposite of Calvinism, Law's Serious Call. From this time I have held with a full inward assent and belief of the doctrine of eternal punishment as delivered by our Lord himself, in as true a sense as I hold that of eternal happiness, though I have tried in various ways to make that truth less terrible to the imagination. Now I come to two other works which produced a deep impression on me in the same autumn of 1816, when I was fifteen years old, each contrary to each, and planting in me the seeds of an intellectual inconsistency which disabled me for a long course of years. I read Joseph Milner's Church History, and was nothing short of enamored of the long extracts from St. Augustine, St. Ambrose, and other fathers which I found there. I read them as being the religion of the primitive Christians, but simultaneously with Milner I read Newton on the prophecies, and in consequence became most firmly convinced that the Pope was the Antichrist, predicted by Daniel, St. Paul, and St. John. My imagination was stained by the effects of this doctrine up to the year 1843. It had been obliterated from my reason and judgment at an earlier date, but the thought remained upon me as a sort of false conscience. Hence came that conflict of mind which so many have felt besides myself leading some men to make a compromise between two ideas so inconsistent with each other, driving others to beat out the one idea or the other from their minds, and ending in my own case, after many years of intellectual unrest, in the gradual decay and extinction of one of them. I do not say in its violent death, for why should I not have murdered it sooner, if I murdered it at all? I am obliged to mention, though I do it with great reluctance, another deep imagination which at this time, the autumn of 1816, took possession of me. There can be no mistake about the fact, namely, that it would be the will of God that I should lead a single life. This anticipation, which has held its ground almost continuously ever since, with the break of a month now and a month then, up to 1829, and after that date, without any break at all, was more or less connected in my mind with the notion that my calling in life would require such a sacrifice as celibacy involved, as, for instance, missionary work among the heathens, to which I had a great drawing for some years. It also strengthened my feeling of separation from the visible world of which I have spoken above. In 1822 I came under very different influences from those to which I had hitherto been subjected. At that time, Mr. Waterley, as he was then, afterwards Archbishop of Dublin, for the few months he remained in Oxford, which he was leaving for good, showed great kindness to me. 
He renewed it in 1825, when he became principal of Alban Hall, making me his vice-principal and tutor. Of Dr. Waterley I will speak presently, for from 1822 to 1825 I saw most of the present provost of Oriel, Dr. Hawkins, at that time vicar of St. Mary's, and when I took orders in 1824 and had a curacy in Oxford, then during the long vacations, I was especially thrown into his company. I can say with full heart that I love him and have never ceased to love him, and I thus preface what otherwise might sound rude, that in the course of many years in which we were together afterwards, he provoked me very much from time to time, though I am perfectly certain that I have provoked him a great deal more. Moreover, in me such provocation was unbecoming, both because he was the head of my college, and because, in the first years that I knew him, he had been in many ways of great service to my mind. He was the first who taught me to weigh my words, and to be cautious in my statements. He led me to that mode of limiting and clearing my senses, in discussion and in controversy, and of distinguishing between cognate ideas, and of obviating mistakes by anticipation, which to my surprise has been since considered, even in quarters friendly to me, to savour of the polemics of Rome. He is a man of most exact mind himself, and he used to snub me severely on reading, as he was kind enough to do, the first sermons that I wrote in other compositions which I was engaged upon. Then, as to doctrine, he was the means of great addition to my belief. As I have noticed elsewhere, he gave me the treatise on apostolical preaching by Sumner, afterwards Archbishop of Canterbury, from which I was led to give up my remaining Calvinism and to receive the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. In many other ways, too, he was of use to me on subjects semi-religious and semi-scholastic. It was Dr. Hawkins, too, who taught me to anticipate that before many years were over, there would be an attack made upon the books and the canon of Scripture. I was brought to the same belief by the conversation of Mr. Blanco White, who also led me to have freer views on the subject of inspiration than were usual in the Church of England at the time. There is one other principle which I gained from Dr. Hawkins, more directly bearing upon Catholicism than any that I have mentioned, and that is the doctrine of tradition. When I was an undergraduate, I heard him preach in the university pulpit his celebrated sermon on the subject, and recollect how long it appeared to me, though he was at that time a very striking preacher, but when I read it and studied it as his gift, it made a most serious impression upon me. He does not go one step, I think, beyond the high Anglican doctrine, nay, he does not reach it, but he does his work thoroughly, and his view was in him original, and his subject was a novel one at the time. He lays down a proposition, self-evident as soon as stated, to those who have all examined the structure of Scripture, namely, that the sacred text was never intended to teach doctrine, but only to prove it, and that, if we would learn doctrine, 
we must have recourse to the formularies of the church for instance to the catechism and to the creeds he considers that after learning from them the doctrine of christianity the inquirer must verify them by scripture this view most true in the outline most fruitful in its consequence opened upon me a large field of thought dr waterley held it too one of its effects was to strike at the root of the principle on which the bible society was set up i belonged to its oxford association it became a matter of time when i should withdraw my name from its subscription list though i did not do so at once it is with pleasure that i pay here a tribute to the memory of the rev william james then fellow of oriel who about the year eighteen twenty three taught me the doctrine of apostolical succession in the course of a walk i think round christchurch meadow i recollect being somewhat impatient of the subject at the time it was about this date i suppose that i read bishop butler's analogy the study of which has been to so many as it was to me an error in the religious opinions its inculcation of a visible church the oracle of truth and a pattern of sanctity of the duties of external religion and of the historical character of revelation are characteristics of this great work which strike the reader at once for myself if i may attempt to determine what i most gain from it it lay in two points which i shall have an opportunity of dwelling on in the sequel they are the underlying principles of a great portion of my teaching first the very idea of an analogy between the separate works of god leads to the conclusion that the system which is of less importance is economically or sacramentally connected with the more momentous system and of this conclusion the theory to which i was inclined as a boy namely the unreality of material phenomenon is an ultimate resolution at this time i did not make the distinction between matter itself and its phenomena which is so necessary and so obvious in discussing the subject secondly butler's doctrine that probability is the guide of life led me at least under the teachings to which a few years later i was introduced to the question of the logical cogency of faith on which i have written so much thus to butler i traced those two principles of my teaching which have led to a charge against me both of fancifulness and of scepticism and now as to dr waterley i owe him a great deal he was a man of generous and warm heart he was particularly loyal to his friends and to use the common phrase all his geese were swans while i was still awkward and timid in eighteen twenty two he took me by the hand and acted towards me the part of a gentle and encouraging instructor he emphatically opened my mind and taught me to think and to use my reason after being first noticed by him in eighteen twenty two i became very intimate with him in eighteen twenty five when i was his vice-principal of alban hall i gave up that office in eighteen twenty six when i became tutor of my college and his hold upon me gradually relaxed he had done his work towards me or nearly so 
when he had taught me to see with my own eyes and to walk with my own feet not that i had not a good deal to learn from others still but i influenced them as well as they me and cooperated rather than merely concurred with them as to dr waterley his mind was too different from mine for us to remain long on one line i recollected how dissatisfied he was with an article of mine in the london review which blanco white good-humouredly only called platonic when i was diverging from him in opinion which he did not like i thought of dedicating my first book to him in words to the effect that he had not only taught me to think but to think for myself he left oxford in eighteen thirty one after that as far as i can recollect i never saw him but twice when he visited the university once in the street in eighteen thirty four once in a room in eighteen thirty eight from the time that he left i have always felt a real affection for what i must call his memory for at least from the year eighteen thirty four he made himself dead to me he had practically indeed given me up from the time that he became archbishop in eighteen thirty one but in eighteen thirty four a correspondence took place between us which though conducted especially on his side in a friendly spirit was the expression of differences of opinion which acted as a final close to our intercourse my reason told me that it was impossible we could have got on together longer had he stayed in oxford yet i loved him too much to bid him farewell without pain after a few years had passed i began to believe that his influence on me in a higher respect than intellectual advance i will not say through his fault had not been satisfactory i believe that he had inserted sharp things in his later works about me they have never come in my way and i have not thought it necessary to seek out what would pain me so much in the reading what he did for me in point of religious opinion was first to teach me the existence of the church as a substantive body or corporation next to fix in me those anti-erastian views of church polity which were one of the most prominent features of the tractarian movement on this point and as far as i know on this point alone he and hurl froude intimately sympathized though froude's development of opinion here was of a later date in the year eighteen twenty six in the course of a walk he said much to me about a work then just published called letters on the church by an episcopalian he said that it would make my blood boil it was certainly a most powerful composition one of our common friends told me that after reading it he could not keep still but went on walking up and down his room it was ascribed at once to waterley i gave eager expression to the contrary opinion but i found the belief of oxford in the affirmative to be too strong for me rightly or wrongly i yield to the general voice and i have never heard then or since of any disclaimer of authorship on the part of dr waterley the main position of this able essay are these first that church and state should be independent of each other he speaks of the duty of protesting against the profanation of christ's kingdom by that double usurpation 
the interference of the church in temporals and the state in spirituals and secondly that the church may justly and by right retain its property though separate from the state the clergy he says though they ought not to be hired servants of the civil magistrate may justly retain their revenues and the state though it has no right of interference in spiritual concerns not only is justly entitled to support from the ministers of religion and from all other christians but would under the system i am recommending obtain it much more effectually the author of this work whoever he may be argues out of both these points with great force and ingenuity and with a thorough-going vehemence which perhaps we may refer to the circumstances that he wrote not in propria persona and as thereby answerable for every sentiment that he advanced but in the professed character of a scottish episcopalian his work had a gradual but a deep effect on my mind i am not aware of any other religious opinion which i owe to dr Waterley. in his special theological tenet i had no sympathy in the next year eighteen twenty seven he told me he considered that i was aaronizing the case was this though at that time i had not read bishop bull's defensio nor the fathers i was just then very strong for that anti-nicene view of the trinitarian doctrine which some writers both catholic and non-catholic have accused of wearing a sort of arian exterior this is the meaning of a passage in frode's remains in which he seems to accuse me of speaking against the Athanasian creed i had contrasted the two aspects of the trinitarian doctrine which are respectively presented by the Athanasian creed and the nicene my criticism were to the effect that some of the verses of the former creed were unnecessarily scientific this is a specimen of a certain disdain for antiquity which had been growing on me now for several years it showed itself in some flippant language against the fathers in the encyclopaedia metropolitana about whom i knew little at the time except what i had learnt as a boy from joseph milner in writing on the scripture miracles in eighteen twenty five eighteen twenty six i had read middleton on the miracles of the early church and had imbibed a portion of his spirit the truth is i was beginning to prefer intellectual excellence to moral i was drifting in the direction of the liberalism of the day i was rudely awakened from my dream at the end of eighteen twenty seven by two great blows illness and bereavement end of chapter one part one